Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is December the 3rd. We're crawling towards the end of this weird year, this crisis year 2020. Um, And along, of course, with COVID and Black Lives Matter and the Trump fiasco, um, two issues have dominated, I think, this show over 2020. The first issue is economic inequality. The second is the looming environmental catastrophe. We've had um, in the last few months two very distinguished uh, French economists talking about these uh, dual parallel crises. We had um, a few months ago Gabriel Zuckman, uh, my neighbor in Berkeley, a young French economist in the Picardy School, a kind of Picardy 2.0, wrote an important book called The Triumph of Injustice about economic inequality in the world and how it's wrecking the world. Uh, and then uh, last month, uh, we had Thomas Leroux, a, uh, a French r- researcher uh, who's written a really important book called the, or co-written a really important book called The Contamination of the Earth. And uh, Leroux, of course, is Contamination of the Earth, A History of Pollutions in the Industrial Age suggests that this crisis is becoming more and more intense. He, in his historical analysis, we are now charging headlong into the abyss of environmental catastrophe. So these two crises exist supposedly in parallel. But today we have a French economist, another French economist, environmentalist, uh, Lucas Chancel, a professor from Paris, who has an award-winning new book out, Uh, unsustainable inequalities, social justice, and the environment. Uh, Lucas, what and how are these dual crises connected? Why are they so hard to actually untangle? The crisis of economic inequality and the crisis of the environment. Hi, Andrew, and thank you very much for the invitation. Um, Look, you know, this is uh, about 11 months uh, after the, you know, the beginning of this global pandemic. And from what we know about it so far, the pandemic has exacerbated uh, all sorts of uh, social um, and economic inequalities. When you look at blue colors versus white colors, you see that some were just much more hit by the crisis than others. When you look at uh, male versus females, when you look at minorities versus the rest of the population. It really looks like, you know, this pandemic is exacerbating uh, uh, social and economic injustices. And in fact, when when you're interested at uh, climate, climate change or environmental degradation, this kind of pattern that we observe in the context of the pandemic is a, is, is a kind of regular pattern that you observe with many other forms of environmental shocks. 
and in fact, the 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 the, the COVID crisis is very likely, uh, you know, due to environmental degradation, right? You chop down trees, you modify natural habitats, and then you have much more migration from these viruses that come from the, the, the fauna or the flora in certain regions of the world to humans. So this is one form of, you know, we're inheriting from uh, a form of environmental crisis here. Uh, but there are other, other forms of environmental crisis like hurricanes, like, you know, uh, very well, much more, much better than I do in, uh, in Western uh, USA, wildfires, uh, uh, droughts, uh, uh, floods and so forth and so on. And for all these forms of environmental disasters, what we know of is that they are also exacerbating social inequalities. It's uh, a very general thing that we, that we see that the low-income groups, the minorities are both more exposed to the risks of environmental degradation. Think about the Katrina disaster, for instance, uh, in uh, uh, New Orleans about 15 years ago, the low-income groups were more exposed to, you know, these flood areas, but are also more sensitive to the shock, meaning that they have less resources to adapt, less resources to reconstruct. Right. And actually, Lucas, um, earlier this year, we also had um, uh, a Miami-based journalist, Mar uh, Mario Alejandro Ariza, uh, on the show talking about his new book, disposable city, Miami's future on the shores of climate catastrophe. And he very much echoes what you say about the impact of the environmental crisis on the poor. Uh, Lucas, uh, you wouldn't be uh, a, a, an economist if you didn't have a chart. And you have a chart which summarizes this. Perhaps you might explain this chart, which explains this this, this, these parallel crises of the environment and inequality? Sure. In fact, there are, there are two sides to it. The first side is that, you know, environmental degradation is actually going to exacerbate inequality. So environment is the new frontier of social justice. And if you want to solve, you know, or to improve the conditions, the social conditions of the societies you live in, you need to, to care about the environment. And this is, you know, environmental policymaking is a form of social policy. But there are, there are, there are two, two other things to have in mind. First, there's another equality at stake, which is that uh, we don't all pollute in the same way. Some groups of people, some countries, some social groups pollute more than others. And uh, this is true when you look at rich countries versus poor countries. But this is also true when you look within countries there's a strong concentration of who emits carbon versus those that don't emit much carbon. Um, and this is the graph that I, I, I've, I've sent to you that, that, that you can see on the screen, which we could call the, you know, the elephant curve of global... Yeah, this is the inequality. elephant curve. Uh, and for those people who are just listening on video, uh, sorry, on audio, you won't see the elephant curve. So you need to watch this show on video. But... Um, uh, so, L Lucas, perhaps you so, might describe the curve for those sure, people who aren't sure. able to see your chart. So, just think about the silhouette of an elephant, right? So, there's a there's a line that that you know uh, uh, go goes up uh, and then falls down, and then on the right hand side of the graph, that's the 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 the, 
the trump of the elephant that rises uh, pretty high. This actually, you know, represents who has been emitting a lot of carbon in the world over the past 40 years, 50 years, and the low-income groups are on the left-hand side of the graph, the poorest of the world on the left-hand side of the graph, and the richest of this world on the right-hand side. And what you see here is that, you know, the poorest half of the global population. So here there's a lot of people from emerging countries, the emerging middle class from India, China, Brazil, South Africa, other emerging countries. They've been emitting a lot as compared to what they were emitting before over the past, you know, uh, a few decades. But then what we also see on this graph is that, you know, the middle class, the working class in rich countries have been emitting less and less uh, because in their countries, there have been some kind of, you know, changes in the energy systems. Uh, countries are a bit more efficient when it comes to energy. And there also has been what we know very well in the U.S. now is a stagnation of incomes at the bottom of the distribution. So there's this kind of economic pauperization of people that were in the middle class that are not necessarily in the middle class anymore. And this, you know, sums up into what? Into low-income group, a part of the middle class in the Western world that actually emits today less than it was emitting per capita uh, a few decades back. But then uh, it's interesting, Lucas, that uh, this chart, your your elephant curve, is the opposite of the the, the Kuznet uh, curve, which uh, you suggest doesn't work for the environment. Is that fair? The Kuznet's curves, which assumes that as you have more wealth, uh, it would improve not only inequality, but the environment. You're suggesting that that actually is a myth. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a fairy tale when it comes to thinking about, you know, the environment and growth. And it's the idea that, you know, at some point, you know, as societies become very rich, they have enough resources to invest in environmental protection. So in fact, you know, what you need to do as a society is become richer and richer. And after, you know, you pollute more and pollute more, but after some point, you will, you will be able to dedicate enough resources to pollute less and less and less. And that's a kind of a, you know, then very easy, straightforward path, just increase growth, increase your revenues, and, you know, the environment will be protected as if it was all magical. But this is really not what we observe. In practice and this is you know where i think basing these kinds of analysis on facts on measurement on sound data and this is really the kind of general project in which i'm trying to get into with this book to combine the you know empirical science of inequality with the empirical right. science of the climate and what you're and saying we, which is so different from many other economists is that inequality and environmental catastrophe are growing at the same rate let's let's get into some details lucas you you have a list or i've taken a list from the book of the causes of in income inequality you talk about technological innovation trade globalization financial globalization in the weakening of the social state the growing political power of the wealthiest and the role of energy which of course is central to this conversation very briefly, of these six, which do you think are the most important in terms of income inequality? You know, 
when when we think about inequality, there's a kind of general idea that uh, you know a lot of it is is due to globalization and to tech, and that basically if you refuse inequality, then you have to refuse globalization and that, that you have to refuse new technology. And so therefore, we shouldn't do too much about inequality reduction because we want an open world and we want a world with, you know, this kind of technologies that we're using today. What our work shows is that, you know, a country like the US or, or a region like Europe have been exposed more or less in the same way to globalization and to new tech, but inequality uh, rose in very different ways in these two regions. And so therefore, the, you know, the main you know, factor that explains the rise of inequality to me is, and based on the data that we have and the analysis that we make, is two things, the importance of the social state and uh, the reduction of the importance of you know, these social mechanisms that are here to basically make sure that minimum wages increase, that you have you know, enough investments in education for all, that you have enough in investments in public transportation systems or in infrastructures that make you know, the economy function for all, that you have in enough investment in some you know, health systems that are functioning for everybody. And so you know, this is the entire set of things that some have called social state redistribution and pre-distribution mechanism. This is really what is explaining the rise of inequality much and globalization of Do you technology. see yourself in the Piketty-Zuckman school or uh, is there indeed even a school? I can see a couple of books behind <laughs> you. And one of the cultural differences between French or perhaps European writers and American writers, American writers always put their books hmm. right behind them. And uh, European writers put books of people they admire. I can see, I don't see your book behind you, but I do see a couple of books from Piketty and Why Nations Fail. Are you in the Piketty School when it comes to inequality, Lucas? You know, actually, Thomas is, is working right next door in this office. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So so I would say that, you know, definitely, uh, definitely in, in this kind of, of thinking. And what I'm proposing with this book is a kind of uh, expansion, expansion, extension of this reflection to, you know, the other crisis of our times, which is, you know, the climate crisis. Right. And the idea is, is not to say that things are, are simple. It's more to look at the complexity of this relationship. So yeah. climate change is ex ex exacerbating inequality, first. Second, the, 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 the economic inequality levels we see today are translated into inequalities in terms of emissions or in terms of contribution to pollution. Right. But, well, let's move on to that, because the role of energy in inequality is something that you also spend a chapter on. And you talk about the unequal access to food and water, lead poisoning, agricultural and industrial pollution, unequal exposure to environmental shocks and air pollution. You're arguing, of course, that it's the poor, the underclass that is always being more affected, more poisoned, more more damaged by by our environmental crisis is that fair absolutely um you know environmental again environmental degradation is you know a strong element to understand the the current state of social inequalities today and we should perhaps more talk about social and environmental 
inequalities. And it will become even more so in the future when you know this degradation worsens and is accelerated by our lack of you know ability to actually act to protect the environment. But one point that I really want to make here, if you allow me to, it's also complicated to protect the environment. And some forms of environmental policies that we implement to protect the environment, and so which in the long run will be good for the poor, will be good to reduce inequalities, can actually in the short run be pretty bad in terms of social justice. And we had a very clear example of that in Europe and in France in particular uh, over the past two years, the Yellow Vest movement. The right. government wants to implement a carbon tax, but everybody goes out in the streets or a lot of people go out in the street saying, we don't want to pay the tax because this tax is actually asking us to pay more when we go to work, when we put oil in our cars. And at the same time, you've just reduced the tax rate on the wealthiest in this country. This is exactly what happened in France. And so you can understand here that, you know, there is this tension when you implement environmental policies and that there, that there are different ways to do right. so. Some ways are going to be more, you know, inequality enhancing and others might be more, you know, much better from a social justice point of view. This is also what I try to show uh, in the book. Yeah, the other big variable in this that we haven't discussed, which of course, when it comes to the, the yellow vests in France and the growth of populism around the world is politics and the political sphere. You talk a little bit about this in the book. You talk about uh, Ragan, uh, 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 Raghuram Rajan, who I had on my How to Fix Democracy show, who writes about the relationship between unequal capitalism and the crisis of democracy. You suggest that the growth of populism is also bound up in both this dual crisis of the environment and of inequality, and I guess manifested by movements like the Yellow Jacket. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the general message is that I think we're, it, it's starting to be pretty clear and there has been a shift in public thinking about inequality over the past decade. And now, you know, a lot of people recognize that inequality is a social bad. It's not particularly good for the economy. It's not particularly good for the functioning of our democracies. And what I'm arguing here as well is that it's not good for societies who want to care about the environment. Because if you have too much inequality, there's a lot of tension about questions of redistribution of on taxes and you have less time, less resources, less political capital to invest in thinking about the future. And so the whole environmental discussion is much more complex in a situation of a lot of you know, social tensions and of high inequalities. The good news here and what I'm arguing in the book is that you have a lot of countries that have done things well and that have managed to implement what I call social environmental reforms or social environmental states. Um, and you know, in the rich world, you have the example of Sweden, for instance, that has the highest carbon tax rates in the world today and no one complains about it. Why? Because they implemented that in a, in a context where they were also caring a lot about the, the, the sake of poorest citizens, giving them opportunities to basically have the choice between paying the carbon tax or changing 
from fossil fuel technologies to non-fossil fuel technologies. So giving people you know, choices and opportunities, uh, which is not what is done in other countries. Right, the Swedish example, uh, and again, those people who are just listening won't see the image of the, the Swedes saving the climate. Um, but uh, Sweden does come out of your book as one of the countries which is really innovating and pioneering, confronting both inequality and environmental uh, catastrophe. Um, let's, at the end here, let's, uh, Lucas, talk about solutions. Um, you have a number, you, and I'm getting listing them, public services and energy cooperations, public water utilities, uh, energy revolution in housing, changing popular attitudes about energy. And then, of course, you come to the Green New Deal for jobs and a progressive ecological taxation, which, of course, is a Piketty-style solution. Uh, the Green New Deal, uh, uh, Lucas, is, of course, a hot subject, particularly now that Biden's been elected. We had the um, the Green New Deal journalist Kate Aronoff on the show a few months ago talking about her book, A, a Planet to Win, Why We Need a, a Green New Deal. Is the Green New Deal broadly, is that the solution to everything here, particularly in the United States? You know, I think we need to do to go beyond. I think we need to uh, beyond uh, the Green New Deal. I think we need to be more precise about what we exactly mean by the Green New Deal, and to be more convincing about how a Green New Deal really is going to be good for those miners in Pennsylvania, for those miners in all these you know swing states of the Rust Belt in in in, in the U.S where there are still a lot of people that are afraid that they are going to lose their jobs and that they will not have alternatives. And as long as we still have a significant amount of miners, of people in the oil industry, in the oil business, that legitimately care about their jobs in the context of a green transition, uh, this means that the Green New Deal is not you know, complete yet. And so I think there's still much more work to be done both on the communication side, but also on how we design policies. Otherwise, we always face the risk of a backlash. And I think that you know, Donald Trump getting out of the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015 for the sake, or at least one of the reasons that he was bringing forward, which is very probably not the true reason, but at least this was used as a communication tool, that it was to protect protect American miners. I think this shows that we need to go further and that there's still a lot of work to lay out really what policies we're talking about and how concretely this is going to improve the lives, the income, the revenues of those who think that they would lose from the transition. Uh, Lucas, uh, we... we um... We had a young woman on the show a few months ago, uh, uh, an environmental activist very much concerned with the plastics crisis around the world. She quoted the South Pole explorer Robert Swan, uh, who said, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Uh, and this young woman, Hannah Tester, introduced uh, her Five R's, refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. That, of course, is, I wouldn't say a, a, an American libertarian argument, but it doesn't really involve the state. Is there a role for the individual here or, or 
are you as a more of a traditional French sociologist, economist, environmentalist, arguing that this has to come from above, this fix to the crisis? Can it be done by citizens? You know, there, there, there's a, an interesting study that in, um, in France that measures, uh, but you would find similar results in, in, other, in other countries. You know, uh, the act that you can do as an individual to meet the objectives of the Paris Climate Agreement, basically divide your carbon footprint by five or 10, depending whether you're in Europe or the United States. And what this study shows is that one third of the, of the whole effort, of the whole you know, uh, uh, work can be done uh, by the individual, by changing your you know, uh, real- so, that's, so that still leaves two thirds for the, for, for the government. Well, you know, the government is is us. The government is how, you know, we decide about, you know, who's going to be in power and, and what kind of policies are going to be implemented. So it's always about the individual, I would say. But for, you know, a part of the problem is the individual in, in, in our intimates, whether or not I take my car or public transportation, whether or not I eat beef thrice a day. But then it's also the individual about, you know, what, what I put in the ballot in local, regional, state, national elections. Right. Wise words from Lucas Chancel, your new book, um, Unsustainable Inequalities, Social Justice and the Environment, is essential reading for anyone who cares either about these dual crises of inequality and of uh, environmental catastrophe. Needs to be read. You are in your office in south of Paris, up, up the corridor from... Thomas Piketty, uh, Lucas, what else should people be reading? You've got a couple of books behind you, a couple of Piketty books, uh, A Why Nations Fail. What else is on your reading list in these strange times where we're all, whether we're in France or the United States, we're all locked up because of COVID? You know what, this is, you know, beyond economics, but one of my favorite authors is Albert Camus. And I think a lot of American uh, uh, people know about, you know, the, the, the stranger, but absolutely the plague, you know, this is really something that we need to, to read and reread and particular, uh, particularly in times of pandemics, because it's about also what happens to societies when confronted to these huge shocks. And of course, La Peste is also a big metaphor for the rise of these dark ideas that we also see in the current highly unequal context, context that we always want to blame, you know, foreigners, that we want to blame strangers for what is happening to us. I think La Peste is, you know, hugely uh, uh, important in the current context, even though it was written uh, 80 years ago. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much 
for listening.